Well, I'm going to invite you guys to go ahead and, and make your way to Luke chapter 3. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20 this week. And so while you guys are uh, finding your way there, I'm going to find my way there as well. But I got my little ribbon there, so it makes it easy for me. Um, <clears throat> while you guys are finding your way there, I'm going to remind you just briefly of, of what we were looking at last week, who we saw last week, and, and kind of where we're at in the story. So last week we were discussing uh, this crazy guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist was impacting huge crowds of people. There were huge crowds of people. He is out in the wilderness outside of the city, and, and, and multitudes of people were coming out to uh, hear him, and he was calling for, he was preaching a message of repentance, that, that we have to turn our back on sin, on, on the way that we used to live in order to follow God. And so this week, we're going to continue to look at John the Baptist, but we're going to see an important reminder that uh, we need to act just like John the Baptist did when God chooses to work through us. See, God was doing incredible things through John the Baptist, and so uh, in the same way that we're going to see John point the attention away from himself and point it to God, that the goal in all of John's ministry is to point to the one who is coming, to, to point to the Messiah, that it's not about John, it's about the Messiah, Jesus, who's coming, uh, that we just sang about. Uh, what a wonderful connection there. Uh, we need to, to get the focus away from us and point it to God. So uh, with that kind of in the back of our minds, we're going to look at the passage. We're going to go ahead and read the whole passage, uh, kind of give us a framework for what we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, and then we'll start to jump into some of the details. So I invite you to, to start reading with me Luke chapter 3, verse 15. It says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and thoroughly clears his th- to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Would you guys pray with me now? God, we, <clears throat> we are so thankful for um, God, for, for the fact that you uh, come into our lives. God, that you speak to us through your holy and perfect and without mistake word. God, as we consider uh, these, these words about John the Baptist from Luke chapter 3 this morning, God, we pray that, uh, that you would work in our hearts. God, that we would not just be people who uh, stash this information away somewhere in the back of our heads, but God, that, God, that you would change our lives because of it. God, that, that this, that this this passage, this book that I'm holding in my hands, we know that it is alive, that it is active, that it uh, does work in our hearts and in our lives. And so, God, we pray this morning that as we open it, as we consider it, God, that it would do work in our hearts, God, that it would do work in our lives, that we would be changed and different because of what you have to say to us this morning. God, we pray that we would be uh, able to hear what you have for us, and God, we pray that we would put it into practice in our lives. So we give this time to you, and we pray that you would speak, that you would become greater, and that we would become less. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I didn't, uh, I didn't put together any sort of a fancy, catchy outline 
uh, this week. So as we go through, we're, we're going to look at basically just the characters and what the passage has to say about the characters. So the first thing that we're going to look at in uh, verse 15 and a little bit in verse 16 is just a little bit of information about John, a little bit about John. So as we look at those verses, it's important for us to remember in, in Jesus's own words, a little bit later in the Gospels, we see it in Luke chapter 7. In Jesus's own words, he says that there was no one greater than this man, John the Baptist, that is speaking here in our passage. In Luke 7, 28, he says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Because of this, we shouldn't be surprised when we read in verse 15 as we pick up our story this week that it says that the people were waiting expectantly. They were, they were wondering in their hearts, is this the one that we've been waiting for? Because for, for years, for generations, for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, people in the, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish family, had been waiting for this promised one, this Messiah who was going to come, that was going to set them free from the captivity that they were in, was going to change their relationship with God. And so they didn't have all of the pieces uh, kind of like we do, that, that we were, were able to put all the pieces together. They didn't, they didn't have all of the picture. They just had little bits of information here and there. So they see this powerful prophet, this man who's coming out and, and drawing crowds like they've never seen before and, and, and changing people's lives like they probably have never seen before. And so they're wondering in their hearts, is, is this the one? Is this the one that we've been waiting for? See, I think even for us, we can admit it's natural for us to, to kind of elevate people who have had an impact in our lives or, or we see having an impact in the world. You could probably think back if, if we took time to go around the room and, and many of you would be able to name names of teachers or coaches or perhaps parents or grandparents or, or people who were in your life who made a profound impact, right? We, we kind of elevate those people and look to those people with esteem because they were significant in our lives. Well, that's kind of what they're doing here with John the Baptist. They're kind of elevating and lifting this guy up because it, he's a man that has had profound impact in their culture, in their area, and for, perhaps for many of them in their own lives. But what we see here as John starts to hear the rumors of that, hear the buzz of that, and start to respond to that is he very quickly shuts that down. No, 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 no. It's not about me. He, he's, he's pointing people to Christ in all of this. It says that he mightily lifted up Christ in we, as we look at these verses. I want to share with you guys a story that I read this week. Uh, I, I read a story about E.V. Hill. He was a, a preacher years ago at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church up in Los Angeles. He would tell the story of an elderly woman in his church who they would all just call 1800 because they had no idea how old she was. So uh, they would call her 1800. She would always sit in the front row, and 1800 was hard on unsuspecting preachers. She was hard on people that would come in and, and perhaps fill the pulpit from time to time because as, she would, uh, as they would get up to begin preaching, she would always yell out, Get them up! what's this crazy lady doing in the front yelling, get him up? She would say that referring to Jesus, right? After a few minutes, if the preacher wasn't doing a good enough job of, of pointing the attention to Jesus, she'd yell it again, get him up! If the preacher continued to, to be funny or, or to be witty or, or to, to somehow make the message about him, he was in for a long day. 
because 1800 was not going to give up on him. Get him up. Get him up. Get him up. Well, that's that kind of an attitude that we see from, from this woman, 1800. That's the attitude that we see from John. It's, it's the, the call that he's making to us today because there's misplaced affection. There's, there's misplaced praise in this passage that's being pointed at John the Baptist instead of at the one who truly deserves it, the one who is coming, Jesus, that we're going to see next week. But uh, John's message has been last week, is this week, and, and always was. It's not about me. It's about him. We see this in a passage that uh, kind of mirrors the encounter that uh, we are looking at today. And in John chapter 3, if we skip over to a different gospel writer's uh, account of this, we see in John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist says that he must increase and I must decrease. That's John's message throughout all of this. He must increase and I must decrease. So the first thing that we looked at here was a little bit about John. Now let's look at the hero of the story. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17. And in verses 16 and 17, we see a lot about God. So I want to read verses 16 and 17 again. 16, I know I mentioned that one with John as well. But we see a little bit about John in 16 and a lot about God. So let's look at 16 and 17. Read those verses again as we jump into those. It says that John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, in the ancient Middle East, in, in Palestine, during this season of history, teachers were held in great respect, with, with great esteem, and uh, so much so that their disciples, the people who would follow them around, were, were trying to follow them and learn how to do what they did, they would voluntarily act as their teacher's slaves. A, a rabbi is quoted as saying, kind of around this same time period, he was probably a contemporary of Jesus, uh, it, he's, he's quoted as stating that disciples should do everything for their masters, except for one thing. They should do everything that a slave does for their master, except for one thing. Don't untie his sandals. Untying their sandals. If you think back to what was the world looked like at that time, there were dirt roads. They didn't have cars. They didn't have other modes of transportation. They pretty much walked everywhere on these dirty, gross streets, right? And so as they're out going and walking around, a person's feet were more nasty than my feet and your feet. They were nasty feet. So much so that, that even you, you don't even, you, you don't want to ask the slaves to do that. That was the worst of the worst jobs. And so as John is, is, is talking about Jesus, when he says that he was unworthy of doing even the most degrading task, that, that even, even the lowest of the lowest of the slaves didn't want to do, that, that no disciple would, they, they would do anything but not that. That's, that's too much for even a, a, a person who is acting as a slave to do. But when John says, guys, I know you think that I'm great, but, but the one who's coming is even greater than me. He's, he's so much greater. I'm not even worthy of doing the gross, nasty, demeaning tasks for him. He is so, so, so much greater. See, it, in, what, in doing what 1800 would say, get him up. 
if we're going to get him up in our lives, that, that, that comes with two different sides of the coin, right? See, in order for us to, to get him up in our lives, it also means that, that we have to take a, a low posture. We have to get ourselves down in order for us to truly get him up in our lives. That's where that verse that I just shared with you guys a minute ago, as John said that he must increase and I must decrease, that, that's such a great picture for us as we look at this, as we look at John and, and look at the way that he was calling people to a relationship with Jesus. The best way for us to express proper affection the way that John did, the, the way that, that we should be pointing people to God in our relationship is by reminding people time and time and time again, guys, it's not about me. If, if I could summarize in a simple statement or two the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, the message of our relationship and God, it's simply put, it's not about me. Guys, it's not about us. It's about him. The, the good news of the gospel is not about me being forgiven or me being loved or all the great things about me. It's about our great God who loved us enough to, to accomplish all of those things, right? We must decrease, and Christ must increase. The next thing I, I want to point out and just pause on for a second is, as John talks about this message of, of baptism, I think it's in verse seven, uh, 16 again. Uh, it says, As for me, I baptize with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, last week, if you guys were with us or, or were watching online, we talked a little bit about baptism. We talked about how the baptism that, that John was uh, performing, the, the, the way that he was baptizing people, it was an outward symbol of an inward reality. You guys remember I, I used my wedding ring to illustrate it. See, my wedding ring, when I take it off, it doesn't mean that I'm not married. When I put it on, it doesn't mean that I'm married. There's nothing magical about this ring, but what it is is it's an outside symbol a way of showing other people outwardly what has happened inside of me. Baptism is, is kind of the same way. It's a, an outward sign of an inward reality. So that water baptism that John talked about, it's still an outward sign of an inward reality. But in this week's passage, John points out that, that the baptism that Jesus brings is different. It's powerful. He, he says that I baptize with water, but, but the one who comes after me baptizes with fire and with the Holy Spirit. The superiority of Jesus' baptism is another thing that we see in this passage that, that John is, is a little bit okay. You know, he's, he's good, but, but Jesus is far superior in this. See, one can be water baptized without truly being baptized by the Spirit, and one can be baptized by the Spirit without uh, living out the, the outward symbol of water baptism. But it's important for us to, to pause and to carefully note here as we talk about this baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Spirit. The, the way that the, the language in the text uh, communicates this, it, it couples spirit baptism and fire baptism with a single preposition. See, it's, it's talking about a single baptism. See, our, our charismatic brothers and sisters might disagree with this and, and, and have kind of built out a whole little... Uh, theology about how those things are separate and how we get empowered differently. But what this is talking about is a single 
baptism. It's talking about a single message of how God comes into a life. When, when we receive salvation, when we place our faith in Jesus alone for salvation, and God comes and begins to work in a person's life, he accomplishes both of these things. We are baptized in the Spirit. We are baptized with fire. It's, it's different ways of communicating the same thing that happens in a person's life. As Frederick Godet points out as he was talking about this, he said that spirit and fire both denote the same divine principle. So what does the Holy Spirit accomplish in us when, when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, when we are baptized into the body of Christ? I wanted to just point out a few things, a few different aspects where God works in the life of a person as we are baptized into his family. And this list is by no means comprehensive. We don't have enough time for this list to be comprehensive, but it's a basic summary of some of the ways that God works in us when we receive salvation. And if you want to hear more of those and read more of those, uh, there's a great little resource that talks about all of the things that God does in the moment of salvation. Take a, a pen, write this down. Uh, it's the, the title, it's a, a little short booklet called 33 Things That Happen at the Moment of Salvation. And if you guys want it, it's a free download that you can either go online and find it, or if you email me, I'll send it to you. It's a, just a, a cool little booklet that's adapted from Lewis, Sherry, Lewis Sperry Schaefer's uh, Systematic Theology. But uh, a couple of things from that list that, that God does in us, that, that when we are baptized by the Spirit, when we are baptized by fire, there's a few things that, that it's important for us to pause and consider this morning. The first thing that happens when that change happens in us is we are regenerated. We are born again, as it talks about in John chapter 3. When uh, Jesus was talking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says that, that all of us were born of flesh, that, that our bodies were born when we were babies, but, but if we want to be alive in our spirit, we have to be born of the spirit. What that means is, is that we are given life, that our spirit is given life. The Bible describes it as that we were once dead, but God brought to life something inside of us, a spirit inside of us. And now, as Christians, a new person stands, a living person stands where we were once dead. The second thing that uh, we want to pause and consider that happens in this moment of salvation, in this baptism of the Spirit, is that we are indwelt. Because once we place our faith in Jesus, once we receive salvation, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus uh, promises in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, it talks about how God places his spirit inside of us to empower us to the life of devotion that we are called to. We don't live in our own power. We don't look at the list of things that the Bible says, do this and don't do that, and go, it's a big list. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. See, we're not expected to do it in our own power. The Bible tells us that, that God's spirit lives inside of us, that, that he is at work inside of us, and he uh, indwells us and empowers us to live that life of devotion. The next thing that I want to point out that's important for us to remember is that we are prayed for. When, when this, the, the, the baptism of the Spirit comes into our lives, when we are saved, we are prayed for. When we accept God's offer of salvation, He brings life into our dead souls, but He also begins praying for us. The Holy Spirit begins to pray for us as it talks about in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, I want to read them for you guys. It says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. 
the, what those verses are talking about is, have you ever had moments in life where God, you, you know that you need God's help, but it's difficult to put words to? It's, it's just more of a, uh, like, it's just hard to, to communicate, to express sometimes. Words fail us sometimes. Well, you know what? We have a Holy Spirit who, who prays for us, who intercedes for us, who stands at the right hand of God the Father begging God, God, they, they need more, they need more, they need more. We are prayed for, not just by each other, although that's incredibly important too. We're prayed for by the Holy Spirit. The next thing that God does in us is that we are enlightened. After God saves us, after his spirit takes up residence inside of us, he opens our eyes to understand the truths of a spiritual world. See, it, it becomes alive in us. 1 Corinthians 2, it, it talks about how the, the things that are of the Spirit, the things that are of God, they're foolishness to a natural man. It's the reason why so many people can, can pick up the Bible just out and about in the world and they read it and they go, I have no idea what this thing is talking about. This is a bunch of nonsense. And, and someone can pick it up and, and believe that it's nonsense and meanwhile, I can pick it up or you can pick it up and we look at it and the Holy Spirit has enlightened us. We look at it and go, man, this changes everything. We can read what someone else can read and for us it, it shakes us to the core and someone else goes, I guess it's okay. Yeah, I mean, that's cool, I guess. What that is is, is the Holy Spirit doing a, a work, working in our hearts, changing us, enlightening us. If I pick this book up and I'm sitting in a dark room, it's not going to do me a lot of good. But if the lights come on, hey, now we're on to something. Now we're cooking with gas, right? So the last thing that I want to point out, and really this is uh, one of the big ones. This is the baptism by fire that uh, John is talking about. The last thing that happens that we're going to look at is that we are sanctified. Last but certainly not least, this indwelling Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes and begins working in our lives, it, it begins a process of putting to death in us the things that used to be important to us. Because when we are saved, when we are, are set free from sin, when we repent and turn our back on sin like we talked about last week, there's a couple of different things that happen. I'm going to give you guys the big uh, theology smart guy words for it, and then I'm going to explain what that means. See, the first thing is that we're justified. The Bible talks about how we're justified, and what that big word means is God forgives us and doesn't hold us responsible for our sin anymore, that, that our sin is no longer on our account. We, he looks at us and he says, innocent, because that debt was put on Jesus, that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid that debt. So when we're justified, that means that we're forgiven, that our account is wiped clean. But that doesn't change all of the junk that's still going on in our lives, right? When a person receives salvation, we can be forgiven and, and set free from the, the punishment that we deserve in God's eyes, but that still doesn't fix all of the bad habits that we've got that need to be fixed. It doesn't uh, magically mean that we overcome sin and, and we no longer have any problems in life, right? Because we still have to fight those bad habits. We still have to fight those sinful urges. And so the other side of that coin is that we are justified and, and forgiven, but we're also in the process of being sanctified. And what that sanctified means is that God is constantly throwing us back in the bathtub and, and cleaning us up a little bit more. 
See, right, when, when we've got bad habits, we go, oh, okay, I, I know that the Bible says that's sinful and I need to stop that. And so we, we take a couple of steps forward and then we, we take a step back. And then we take a couple more steps forward and then we take another step back, right? But that process of improving, of God helping us become more and more and more like we're supposed to be, that's the process of sanctification. And this spirit baptism, as it talks about fire, fire as it is described in Scripture so frequently, is used to purify, is used to cleanse. Isaiah chapter 4 speaks about the cleansing of Zion with washing and with fire. In ancient times, I, I don't think we have any ancient refiners. Uh, nobody works in that field here. But uh, in, in ancient times, refiners or, or, or metal workers, they would have to purify, they would have to refine the metals that they were working with. And so the way that they did that, if anybody's familiar with it, is the way that you do that is you heat up the metal until it's in a liquid form, a molten state. And as it heats up and as it turns into liquid, all of the impurities would rise to the top where the refiner could skim off all of the, they, they called it the dross, all of the impurities. They would, they would heat it up and it would all boil to the surface and they'd just skim off the impurities. They'd mix it up and, and heat it up again, and they would skim off all the impurities. And this process, as they would skim off the impurities and skim off the impurities, it, it would purify the metal to the point where it was finally in its pure state when the refiner could look into the metal, and they no longer saw the junk that was all floating around on the top. They could, they could see their reflection when they looked into it. In that same way, that's what we're talking about when we talk about this baptism by fire. That is a perfect illustration of what the Spirit does in our lives, the way that the Spirit works in us, because what He does is, is He melts our hearts in the same way. He takes out the impurities, that, that process of sanctification, of removing all of the junk from our lives. It, it skims away those impurities, and as we are purified, as we are becoming more and more clean, more and more the people that we're supposed to be, you know what the reflection starts to show? As God cleans us up and removes those impurities from our lives, and as God looks into our lives, you know what he sees? Our lives start to look more and more and more and more like the reflection of the God who is in the process of refining us. That's how Jesus' baptism, the, the baptism of the Spirit, the baptism of fire were, uh, were, were, were better. They were superior to the baptism of water that John was talking about, that, that John was offering. That water baptism only washed the surface. It was only an outward symbol of, of that inward reality. Jesus' baptism is the inward reality. The next thing I want to point out is from verse 17. It talks about Jesus' judgment. It talks about this winnowing fork, which probably doesn't mean a lot to us either. But Jesus' judgment while John may not have known the hearts of all of the men and women who were standing in front of him, Jesus' judgment is perfect. Jesus' judgment is supremely discriminating. See, John himself didn't know who was, who was truly a believer or not. He didn't know who was sincere or insincere. But Christ suffers no lack of discernment like John did. Christ looks into a person's heart, and, and the Bible tells us that, that while man looks at the outward appearance, while we can, we can sometimes convince each other that maybe we're different than we truly are on the inside, it says that the Lord looks at the heart. In the metaphorical setting here that it's talking about, that, that it's talking about how Jesus exercises perfect judgment is that of a harvest. See, when 
they would go out and they would harvest grain in these times. They would, they would go out and they would cut all of it down. And so you're bringing the, the, the stalks and you're bringing the grains and you're bringing everything in. And, and the way that they would do it, they would pluck the heads off of the grain and then they would throw it on the threshing floor. And as it was on the threshing floor, this, this hard either concrete or, or matted down hard ground, they would bring oxen in to, to walk on it, or they would use a plate to, to crush the grains, to crush the wheat. And as it was all broken up, then it would be piled up, and you would take the threshing fork, the, the winnowing fork, and they would toss all of it up in the air. And as you would toss all of it up in the air, the grain is heavy. The, the part that they wanted to keep was heavy, and so when they would throw it up in the air, it would fall back to the ground. And all of the other junk, they would call it the chaff, all of the other stuff, the straw and, and, and all of the rest of it, it was lighter. So they would throw it up into the wind and the, the stuff that they wanted to keep would fall back down and the rest of the junk would blow away where it could be collected and, and burned in the fire. As it's talking about Jesus and his winnowing fork, what it's saying is that when Jesus comes, when, when, when God's time for ultimate judgment comes, he takes his winnowing fork. He can look at the hearts of all men, all women, all children. He, he, he knows the intentions and, and the desires of our hearts. He knows our ultimate motivations and our ultimate beliefs that are happening inside of us. And as he tosses the straw and the grain and everything up into the air, those who have true faith, those who truly trust and believe in him, who have truly received salvation, who have truly been baptized in the Spirit as we just talked about, they will come and they will come back down and be known as true. Meanwhile, those who were just faking it, who were just trying to blend in with the crowd, off they go to be blown away, to be separated. The Spirit's baptism will gather some while others will be left to the wind. It's interesting to me how Luke juxtaposes. He, he, he brings this conflict between good news and judgment and, and brings them together. They're not really at conflict at all, right? It's a, con, a combination that we seldom put together today. It's not something that we usually think of putting judgment. We deserve to be punished along with good news and saying, yeah, these two things go together. It's good news that, that some people will be punished and will be judged for their evil deeds that they've done. But in the gospel, in, in the true good news of the Bible, the message, we, we don't get to separate judgment and forgiveness. Everybody wants to talk about how God is loving and God is forgiving and God is kind. And, you know, me and Jesus, we're, we're cool. We're homeboys, right? Everybody likes loving Jesus. Everybody likes happy Jesus, but nobody wants to talk about the fact that Jesus, that, that God is also a just judge, that God also has to punish sin, to, to punish evil, to punish wickedness where it exists. And so we, we try to separate those things, right? But if we use the word forgiveness, if we use the word saved, salvation, well, why does anyone care sitting in here? Can, can anybody explain to me why you need to be saved if there's nothing bad to be saved from? Okay, I've been saved. From what exactly? See, if, if there's not bad news, there's no good news. If there's not a bad guy in the movie, they get to the end and, oh, everyone's still happy and healthy. Well, 
okay, that wasn't much of a movie. They just were happy the whole time. There was no conflict they had to overcome. In any story, there's, there's the bad guy that's got to be overcome. There's the bad situation. There's the danger that has to be overcome for the victory to happen, right? The good news of the gospel has to come hand in hand with both judgment and forgiveness. What are we forgiven from if it's not the punishment that we deserve? The Bible is incredibly, incredibly clear. God is the king of the universe. God deserves everything that we've got to offer. God deserves full obedience, full submission, full... He's the king and we're the loyal subjects. But when I do what I want to do instead of what he tells me to do, when you do what you want to do instead of what he tells you to do, the Bible describes that as sin. And in the same way that, that we take treason very seriously in this country and, and really in any existence, in any governance throughout history, treason is a capital offense, right? Standing in opposition to the king, disobeying orders, disobeying what, what the authority has told us to do, it's a capital offense. That is what the reality of the gospel is. That when I do what I want instead of what the king who has the right to tell me what to do tells me to do, I deserve capital punishment. I deserve to die for that. I deserve anything that the king wants to pour out on me. But the good news of the gospel is that that judgment doesn't have to be kept on my account. That God, in his rich mercy, in his overwhelming kindness, he, he made a way that, that I didn't have to pay that judgment and you didn't have to pay that judgment. That judgment can be removed, not to just be blown off into the wind, but that judgment had to be willfully taken and put on the back of Jesus Christ. That when he died, even though he didn't deserve it, he didn't deserve the judgment. He never betrayed the king's orders. God poured it out on him so that my account could be set free and that your account could be forgiven, that you could be pardoned, that that judgment could be removed. So as we talk about this winnowing fork, as we talk about Jesus' judgment and the, the supreme clarity with which he looks at each and every heart, each and every person, and sees the truth, we cannot separate the reality of judgment from the reality of, of forgiveness, the offer of salvation. Let's look finally at this last section, we're going to look at a little more about John and a little bit about us. We're going to look at verses 18, 19, and 20. As we look at this section, Luke closes this section of Scripture out with a little mini-summary of what laid ahead for John the Baptist. And I think it really clearly points to some stuff that we've got to wrestle with and deal with today. Let's read those verses again, 18, 19, and 20. It says, So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. John did. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. I included a, a painting from uh, the Dutch artist from the 1600s, Peter Franz de Greber. And I put this up here because I think it shows the, uh, the, 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 the fortitude with which John the Baptist stood and proclaimed the gospel no matter who stood in front of him. See, we see John's faithfulness in these three verses. We see John's faithfulness in a couple of different areas. He was faithful to the gospel. 
The, the Bible tells us in verse 18 that he was faithful to keep preaching the good news. The second thing that we see is that he was faithful in continuing to preach the good news no matter who the audience was. It didn't matter who stood in front of him. He preached the same message, the same gospel, the same truth was true to those people out in the wilderness that had just kind of come out from the city and, and were listening in the crowd, or whether it was the powerful man, Herod, that he would stand in front of. The message didn't change. He didn't bend the message to suit the audience. The truth was the truth. No matter what, the truth was the truth. And finally, we see John's faithfulness no matter what the cost was. We see in verse 20 that, that him proclaiming what was true was not necessarily a popular thing. It wasn't necessarily a good move for his career because when he preached the truth standing in front of Herod, it, it made Herod angry. And this powerful man, Herod, that, that he stood in front of, this powerful government leader decided, I don't like the fact that you're calling me out for stuff. And so he threw him in jail. And ultimately, as, as we continue through the gospel stories, we're going to see the fact that John's life came to a really ugly end as he was beheaded. His head was brought on a platter to Herod in a step of Herod continuing and continuing and continuing in these evil things that John was calling him out for. The idea that everyone is accountable for the moral quality of their life should not be missed as we see these verses. Herod may have seen himself as a supreme authority. He may have seen himself as above God's moral law, but John stands in front of him with his finger out, as that picture kind of showed, and said, God's truth is, is still God's truth. John is still boldly proclaiming the need, just like we saw last week, for, for people to repent, for people to turn their back on sin, for people to turn their back on their selfish ways and go in the direction that God is calling us to. Even powerful men like Herod needed salvation. But Herod responds with a typical response from many sinners. The typical response is often, I don't like what's being said to me, but instead of changing me, I just want to change the situation. I'm just going to change the circumstance. So Herod, the, the way that he dealt with it was, get this guy out of here. He threw him in jail. He removed the conviction, but God is still ultimately going to hold Herod accountable. John's faithfulness as a prophet shows the importance of speaking truthfully, of dealing truthfully with things as they truly are. Even if it's risky, even if it's unpopular, John was willing to stand up for the truth. Even if it was in front of someone that was on the top rung of the social ladder, he stood up for the truth. The church's message today has to, has to somehow find this same balance that John finds here in these verses. See, the church today, we, we, I kind of think of the church's message as a pendulum because if we swing over here in this direction and, and just talk about how much God loves people and, and how much God uh, wants to forgive you and is kind to you and just wants to be your friend, and well, we're, we're missing all the stuff on the other end of the spectrum that's really important to the whole message of the gospel, right? We can't just talk about how sweet and loving and, and kind. And God's not a teddy bear. He's a powerful judge that, that in a moment can end it for all of us. He created the world with the power of just a word. He is fully capable of, of being a lot more powerful and, and, and a lot more 
we'll, we'll run out of time if I, if I try to go down that trail. He's big. And if we just try to make him a teddy bear that we want to snuggle with, we're missing half of it. And if we swing over the other direction and just talk about how angry and grumpy he is and he just wants to punish and kill everybody, well, that's not really the message of the Bible either. We can't swing either direction. We've got to remember that, that both judgment and forgiveness are a part of the story. That, that bad news and good news go hand in hand together as these verses have talked about. And we can't just shy away from either side that makes us uncomfortable. Let's, let's be honest for a minute. I think most of us, we, everybody likes the loving, happy Jesus, right? We don't like the judgment stuff. We don't like the, the, the truth stuff sometimes that, that we just want to hide from. Oh, John was, uh, he was kind of bold. He was kind of out there, wasn't he? Wagging his finger in front of this big, powerful dude that ultimately threw him in jail and, and chopped his head off. Let's not, let's not go to the crazy end of the spectrum. Let's just, let's just lean over here towards the loving, happy Jesus a little more. The church's message must always be balanced. Both sin and forgiveness go hand in hand with the gospel. For us to be faithful witnesses about what the truth of the Bible is, for us to be faithful witnesses about who Jesus is, requires us to be careful with the message of the gospel. It requires us to be lovingly confrontational when people don't understand both sides of that coin. And sometimes it requires us to pay an ultimate price, for us to pay the cost that, that Christ may call us to pay. John was willing to give everything in his earthly life because he knew that, that there was more to existence than what we just see here on the earth. John's faithfulness leads us to a final observation. Sometimes doing God's will is not popular. It may involve personal risk, but it is always, always, always worth it. Today, church, we need to do the same thing. John wasn't afraid of what people were going to do to him because he knew that, that God holds the ultimate power, that, that God ultimately was going to judge Herod, and, and he wasn't scared of what Herod could do to him because he would rather please the ultimate king and deal with what people were going to do to him. So our question for us, what, what do we need to do with this? How do we need to change? My question is, are, are we, am I, are you willing to do what we know is right, to stand for truth even in the face of difficulty? Even if it's not convenient for you, is, are, are you still willing to stand for what's true? Are you still willing to do what's right? Am I still willing to do what's right even if it's going to cost me something? It's easy to do if it's the popular thing, but what about if it's going to cost me something? Do I really believe that it's true enough that I'll, that I'll stand up for it? What does God want you to stand up for today? What truth do you know to be true, but you've kind of tried to slide away from it, tried to, to slink away from the responsibility, tried to, to hide in the shadows and go, oh, yeah, God, I, I believe you on that, but I'm not going to stand up for it. What's God calling us to today? Let's pray. God, we... Um, God, there are, are, are weeks, there are times when we open up your word and we look at the scriptures and we go, oh, that, 
that one makes me feel nice and, and warm and fuzzy. And, and we really like those promises that sometimes you, God, you give us the encouragement and you give us the, the things that we need to hear that are, that are good and, and happy and, and sweet things. And God, there are times when you give us the things that we need to hear that are not comfy and warm, fuzzy things. But God, they are, they are moments that challenge us. They're moments that, that call us to, God, to change something in our lives. God, as we look at John's commitment, as, as we look at a person who, God, John was not about himself. He was about pointing people to Christ. He was about pointing people to the, the one who truly saves. God, may we view ourselves with that, same, with that same attitude, that we might decrease so that you might increase in our lives. And God, may we hold you up with such high esteem that that when there are things that we know to be true, when there are things that we know are, are good and are right and are the way that we should act, that we should behave, that we should live our lives, God, help us to, like John did, stand up for the truth no matter what stands in front of us. God, help us to stand for honesty even when it's not convenient. God, help us to stand for justice, even when it's not popular. God, help us to stand for kindness and, 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 and loving our enemies the way that you tell us to, even when we don't really feel like it. God, help us to do what we know is right instead of just what feels right in the moment. God, we need you to develop conviction in us. God, clean us up, strengthen us, refine us so that we might look more and more and more like the reflection of you that we're supposed to. God, do your work in our lives. We need you. Amen.